Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan on the series of salvation. In the last few episodes, we covered grace, faith, and love, and we're particularly saved by God's great love for us, that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for us, to atone for us, to bring us into that family of God, and to conform us into his own image that was broken and fallen with the first uh with the first fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So the new Adam establishes the new Eve, and we are brought into the body of Christ to be holy, to, sancti- to be sanctified in his great love, to participate in his very nature, which is love. And we hear from the lips of Christ all throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament that we are going to be judged according to what we do, and not merely by what we do, but how we do it, that we can do all these great things, but we do not have love. We are nothing. Without love, we are nothing. We could even give up our bodies in martyrdom. We are nothing, St. Paul says. So in short, we're going to be judged on what we do and how we love people. And the entire law, written law, or in the natural law is fulfilled in love. To love God and to love neighbor as yourself, to lay your life down for your brother and sister as Christ did for us and that we were yet that we were sinners and Christ died for us. And St. Paul talks about how that some of us might find courage to die for a good man, but let alone die for an enemy, to die for, uh, you know, somebody who is hurting you. And that's what Christ did, that we were sinners, that we were enmity towards God and he died for us in his great love and mercy for us. So we are judged according to what we do and how we love and how we um, participate in God's very nature of love. However, there's still this tendency that we want to do that even hearing that we still want to work or earn our salvation or to uh, feel like we still have to do certain things like, oh, if I just do this thing, then I'll be in God's good graces. If I just do this thing, I'll be finally saved or I'll be at peace and know that I'm saved. There's always this feeling of doing more, but that is not the Christian message. Nor is it the way that we should be looking at ourselves or other people because then we put ourselves and other people and even God in a box that you still have to do these certain things uh, in order to be saved. But particularly even inside the body of Christ and even outside, God has given different graces to each individual human person that only him and God alone knows. And we all have different uh, graces in this life and how the what we're born into, what we know around us. So we're going to be judged based on what we do with what we have been given or revealed to us, right? So we're going to be judged based on love and what we have been given. So God doesn't ask us to do the impossible. So for example, somebody who is born into a Hindu family, raised in a Hindu community, is in a Hindu country and only knows Hinduism and never even hears of the person of Jesus or the gospel or uh, just a very logical laid out step of the gospel, and that person's not going to be expected to have uh, explicit faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to be having uh, working with the graces that he's been given. But even if he is saved, he is only saved by Jesus Christ, right? right? There is no other name outside of the name of Jesus that we, in which we are to be saved. But just as Hebrews 11.6 says, at the very least, it's those who would draw near to God, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So at the very least of salvation is having faith that God exists because creation speaks of, of a creator and to work with what we have been given. In other words, there is such thing as invincible ignorance. There's something I didn't know through no fault of their own. And this does not mean being ignorant out of a choice, right? Being ignorant because you would have never found out in the um, through no fault of your own, such as the example that we gave, or 
there's a big difference between that and being ignorant out of your own choice, such as like when someone is hearing the gospel and you just want to be relieved of like not having to uh, be a Christian or whatever. And you're just like covering your ears and saying, la, 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 la to the uh, your theology teacher precisely so that you don't have to become, um, you know, conscious or culpable of hearing the truth, right? So somebody who is doing that, well, that's not invincible ignorance. That's, that is actually rejecting a grace that you're be, being given. But um, so it's being working with what you have been given and revealed to you. And so that's what is going to be the main point of today's uh, episode within the series of salvation is talking about conscious. And we're going to be going through all the scripture references of drawing this out further into more detail. But let's just pause for a second. And after, you know, kind of defining consciousness and God doesn't ask us to do the impossible and somebody may not know the truth through no fault of their own, somebody that something they didn't choose, then they can still work with the grace that they have been given and to work with what has been revealed to them and to work in the natural law, right? That what uh, The law that's been written on the human heart, as St. Paul says in Romans. But let's pause real quick and talk about when this judgment happens, right? So there's a particular judgment and a final judgment, the final judgment being the second coming of Christ. So the particular judgment is a private judgment that occurs immediately after an individual's death. So at the moment uh, of our death, we are judged uh, by God and we are sent to two eternal destinations of our souls, either heaven or hell. And if we die in God's friendship, but we are not purified, sanctified, or perfectly holy, then the love of Jesus, that perfect uh, love for Christ who won on the cross because of Christ's cross, we become perfectly sanctified through purgatory or purgation that that is on our way to heaven in order for us to be perfect, just as in Hebrews 12 says, it's the spirits of just men made perfect. So the key distinction here is that the, uh, and we're going to be talking about heaven, hell, and purgatory in our next episode, but the key distinction here for the particular judgment is that it's a private judgment that occurs immediately after death, and it's for our it's our you know our spirits, our souls that we see in Revelation and in Hebrews that it's the spirits of the saints who are uh, worshiping God and interceding for uh, the saints and Christians here on earth. So, but then there's also the final judgment or the second coming of Christ that happens at the end of time and all the dead are resurrected and the righteous inherit the new world, the new creation, and the wicked are are condemned to hell. This isn't like a second, like God might change his mind, but it's, it's a public revelation. It's to the whole world. Every single person will know the perfect plan, justice, mercy, love of God and see the uh, everything, how we fit into history and we'll see God as he is. We'll understand everything all in a moment of time and our bodies will be part of that new creation now. So our bodies and souls will be reunited. So that final judgment is the resurrection of all the dead, of both the just and the unjust in Acts twenty four fifteen will precede the last judgment. This will be the hour when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come forth 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's referencing John 5, 28 through 29. Then Christ will come in his glory and all the angels with him before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's uh, referencing Matthew 25. So again, we are going to be judged by God whether in the the particular judgment, that private judgment of our souls, or, you know, if the second coming happens before we die, then that we're going to be judged on the second coming. But more than likely, we will have our particular judgment, and then our souls will go to one of those destinations, and at the end of time, our bodies and souls will be reunited. Now let's hop back into the main topic of today's episode, which is consciousness, working with what we have been given, right? So let's first lay the groundwork that there is no such thing as uh, an accidental sin. Sin is never an accident because in order for it to be sin, it has to be freely decided upon even when the person knows that it's wrong. So we may see things that happen on a daily basis where we're looking and judging other actions and saying, okay, that's sin right there. That is wrong. And we may know that. So that sin may be, it is on an objective level, maybe it is sin. But on a subjective level is, does that person know? Does that person know what they are doing is wrong? And this is why Jesus and St. Paul tell us to not pass judgment on somebody. And what they mean right there, this is the key distinction, is that they say do not judge the heart of someone or the state of grace that somebody may be in because only God knows and can, and we cannot play God, right? So we can never pass judgment on somebody's uh, eternal destination based on what we've been given, even though sometimes, hey, sometimes we might be right, but not to pass judgment on that. But Christ actually tells us to judge. So on that objective level, right? So he says, remove the log from your eye so that you can remove the splinter in your brother's eye. And he says, judge with right judgment, right? So we can judge on that objective level, and but we cannot pass judgment on the subjective level. We can't judge another person's heart state of being or their state of grace or where they land with God because we cannot play God. And, and uh, St. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. St. Paul here specifically talks about immorality and judgment and how they play together in and outside of the church. So this is what he says. I write to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But rather I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. So St. Paul here is clearly differentiating that within the body of Christ, there is no room for uh, sin. That is apart from the Christian life. And to actually not associate with those who are deliberately sinning and uh, doing all these things that are contrary to the gospel, to that new creation that we have been created in Christ Jesus, to not associate with them in a form of like excommunication, right? To bring them back, to exclude them from the communion of 
of believers so that they can repent and to come back and to return and out of love, right? And that St. Paul talks about that elsewhere, and so does James, to correct a brother not out of uh, like hatred or uh, doing it out of a place of an enemy, but as, of a, as a brother, out of love. But he differentiates that with somebody who may be an immoral. So he's talking to the church of Corinth who are, who, you know, there's a community filled of pagan immorality and idolatry and a lot of sexual, sexual immorality. And St. Paul here is saying that God judges those outside the church, right? So on an objective level, yes, it is wrong. And if people know that, then we need to correct that. And even if people don't know that, right, we want to inform people. But God alone judges the heart because only God knows what the, these uh, what each person has been given. So yes, judge on an objective level. No, do not play God and condemn people to hell. Now let's hop into the scripture about consciousness. Let's first start with the person of Jesus, our favorite person, our best friend, our Lord. So think of the very first words of Jesus recorded in scripture, and it's to repent and to believe in the gospel. Repent, that Greek word is metanoia, which literally means to change your mind, to change your way of thinking, to turn around your way of thinking, to change your mind, to change your consciousness, to repent and believe in the gospel, metanoia and believe in the gospel. And St. Paul in Romans 12, 2 says that to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's in our minds. Christ establishes to tells us, St. Paul tells us to hold every thought captive to Christ, that metanoia is to change our mind, to inform our consciousness, to be renewed in our inner person, the in our hearts, to renew our minds. Our, our mind and our hearts are connected. Jesus addresses both of the mind and the heart to his disciples, the Pharisees, those who are around him. Why are you thinking these ways? Why do you uh, have these beliefs in your heart, right? So our mind and our hearts are connected, and to put our heart in heaven, we have to first beginning to think like the kingdom of God here on earth, to be putting on the mind of Christ, to be transformed in that renewal of the mind, to inform our consciousness with the way of the kingdom. Now we're going to go through a few gospel verses where Jesus really draws out this notion of consciousness, and the first one is in John 9, 41. Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So what Jesus is talking about is people who are blind, they have no guilt because they don't know. But now that I have spoken to you, Pharisees, and that you, and you say, you see, your guilt still remains because you are not repenting of your own ways and and coming to believe in Jesus Christ and yet you uphold this the the written law and force them upon people but do not have mercy and and help other people and you do not see the true spirit of the law and similarly John 15:22 Jesus says if i had not come and spoken to them they would not have sin but now they have no excuse for their sin because Christ is saying, now that I have told you, you have no excuse. Now that you know, now that you are conscious, now that you uh, are aware of your sin that I have spoken, the love that I have, the truth that I have spoken, and yet you reject it, now you have no excuse for your sin because now you are culpable because now you know. In Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 29, this is where Jesus says this, All sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever 
blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And the parallel passages of this is in Matthew 12, 31 through 32. And instead of saying guilty of an eternal eternal sin, Matthew says that the person will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And then in Luke 12, 10, it just simply says that that person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Mark 3, 28 through 29 clearly brings out, tries to clearly bring out the guiltiness that is an eternal sin, that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And that is when we are unrepentant, out of pride, we do we know our sin and yet we do not repent. And that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always is moving with the grace of turning, metanoia, of changing our ways and to change our mind and to reveal the person of Jesus and to uh have us turn to the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to reveal Jesus to us. And Jesus talks about the working of the Spirit in John 16. He says, starting in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then he goes on to say how the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide the church into all truth when he's speaking to the apostles. So Jesus here is telling us, teaching us the working of the Spirit. And so now when we jump back to those verses of about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven and is guilty of an eternal sin, it's precisely when we work against the working of the Spirit who came to reveal, convict us of sin, to turn to Jesus, to believe in him, to change our ways, to metanoia, to transform our minds, to uh, to acknowledge our sin that is on our conscience and to turn to, to Jesus. When we re when we renounce that, we renounce salvation, we renounce Jesus, we renounce the Father, and we cannot be forgiven. When we know that we have done something wrong, we know what we are guilty of, and yet we do not repent. We do not metanoia. We do not change our minds. And now I want to jump to some St. Paul references of this, and he is really adamant about it. Let's jump back to Acts 24, 16. If you remember, we just uh, um, we just quoted this earlier when we were talking about the final judgment. In Acts 24, 15, this is in, when St. Paul is at uh, Caesarea, and he's speaking to Felix, the governor, and he says in Acts 15 that, having a hope in God, which these themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he's talking about the resurrection of the dead um, in the final judgment. And then in 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men. So he's talking about his consciousness in the context of being judged. In Romans 2, 14 through 16, St. Paul says this, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that when the law requires is written on their hearts, while their consciousness also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the standard here is Christ Jesus and to be conformed to him. 
and even people who do not know the law by nature they can do that and it's our consciousness in the form in the context of judgment by Jesus uh, St. Paul talks about here is that it's our consciousness that consciousness even to Gentiles who will either have uh, will excuse them or accuse them right in first Corinthians 4 3 through 5 St. Paul is de- dealing with the church of Corinth on people uh, casting judgment upon St. Paul and talking bad things about him and him as an apostle. And so people are judging him. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And just before that, in these the, the preceding verses, he talks about how he is a steward of the mysteries of God, that he has become a steward. He's an apostle. And then he goes on to say, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself or on my conscience, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. So here is a lot of things packed into two verses. He says, do not judge, and he can't even judge himself because we cannot play God. So uh, when we're going to have a whole episode about are you saved and how to answer that. And it's yes with a confidence in God and uh, forming of your conscience, just as St. Paul. But you cannot play God and say, I know for metaphysical certainty I'm going straight to heaven because you are not God, and that's out of pride, right? So uh, St. Paul, even the great St. Paul, an apostle, who is who, this would be a perfect time to say that, right, when he's defending himself. But he even says, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything on my conscience, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Then he goes on to say, this is another great thing to pull out of this, is to not do not pronounce judgment on other people before, the, before that time of the Lord comes. The time that he's referring to is the coming of Christ when we are, are or just the judgment of Christ. And, and it's also disclosing how we in the, at the end of time, we're going to see everything that was hidden in darknesses and the purposes of men. And then when you hop to the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, uh, St. Paul is talking about here the consciousness of those of brothers and sisters who came from a Jewish background or a pagan background. And he's offering uh, and he's talking about, you know, having a formed consciousness and how to treat others, pe- other people's consciousness um, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, you know, of eating meat and offering uh, and eating food that were offered to idols. And he talks about consciousness in these ways. In verse 7, he says, Not all possess this knowledge. This knowledge meaning the preceding verses, he's talking about how we know that there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's talking about not all possess this knowledge, but some, through being until now accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died." 
Thus, sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. So he's talking about how um, we can be a scandal to others and we can actually cause others to sin who believe that, you know, hey, I know that, hey, there is no other God that you're offering uh, meat, you know, these sacrifices to, so I can eat the meat. But the person who thinks that you're actually uh, participating in the table of um, of pagan gods and these these idolatry sacrifices, as, you know, and St. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, how we participate in the sacrifice of the Lord in the Last Supper um, and to participate in the blood of Christ and participate in his body and the bread. Uh, you know, he's talking about the Eucharist. And he specifically contrasts that with the sacrifice of idols, right? So now when you have back to 1 Corinthians 8, St. Paul is talking about to not become a stumbling block to be to hurt others, other people's uh, consciousness or weakness, um, even with what they know. So if even food causes somebody else to sin, meaning that they're going to start partaking in, you know, these food offered to idols and thinking that they're actually doing it for idols, well, then I'll never eat meat again, uh, St. Paul says. So it always comes back to our consciousness and others and other people's. We might be at different uh, places in our spiritual life, but to never become a stumbling block or a scandal to other people. And then in 1 Timothy 1.19, St. Paul says to Timothy to hold faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenes and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here he's talking about how when you reject your consciousness, then you are actually making shipwreck of the faith. So your consciousness is not apart from faith. It is uh, a, a consciousness that is formed by your faith. And when you uh, reject one or the other, one of them is the other one is weakened. So by rejecting consciousness, people have made shipwrecks of their faith. And he has delivered them to Satan, meaning it's a form of like excommunication so that they repent and to come back to the true faith. And there's an incredible and powerful modern day example of this same thing that we actually make a shipwreck of our faith when we reject our conscience. Because when we reject our conscience, we're trying to either rationalize or make it seem okay what we've done in the past. Our guilty conscience, we want to make it feel not guilty. So we rationalize and don't ever own up to what we have what we have done. And we actually make a shipwreck of our faith because as we're going to hear in this small a minute and a half clip from Father Matthias, uh, what he says in there is so powerful that when we actually want to rationalize and, uh, and go around our guilty conscience, we actually are in a form of denial. And, when, and every single de- uh, f- uh, denial is a form of hopelessness. But the gospel is not filled with hopelessness. It's filled with love and compassion that meets us in our sin and our brokenness. So every single thing that we did, we don't have to rationalize, like, well, Jesus, I did it because of this or that. No, I did this and I was wrong. And this is when we turn to love and mercy of God and say, Jesus, I am wrong. I've done. I don't no longer want to live in guilt. I never, I, I want to say, yes, I did this. It is wrong. Jesus, please purify me. Please make me holy. Fill me. Heal me. And so I'm going to play this a minute and a half clip from Father Matthias because this is a great modern day example of when we reject our conscience, we actually make a shipwreck of our faith that is uh, not um, in line with the kingdom or in line with the gospel. One of the main reasons why people are pro-choice, one of the main reasons why they downplay abortion is because they themselves or someone they know has had an abortion and they cannot stand the face of the fact of what they did. They don't know how to handle that. 
And so they defend abortion rights with almost religious fervor because they're trying to avoid the pain of their conscience. But avoiding what happened is a form of denial, and, a form of, and, and denial is a form of hopelessness. But I have good news. When you come to know Jesus, when you encounter him in the midst of your, your sin and your brokenness and the devastation that you've called, you come to know love and mercy itself. And you no longer have to deny reality. You no longer have to live in denial, seeking to, to defend your guilty conscience. You can live in freedom and you can live to help other people become free and not to commit this crime again. You see, this is the power of the gospel. I truly believe we're not going to solve this problem, this genocide of abortion by politics. That's not how it's going to be solved. It's going to be solved by declaring the mercy of God who loves us in the midst of our brokenness. He's so in love with us. So if any of you have had an abortion or you assisted someone with an abortion, I have this to say, God loves you. Do not forget that what he did on the cross is more powerful than any sin you could ever have committed. And he wants you to be free. He wants you to be free to fight for justice and not live in guilt. This is the power of the gospel. You see, the laity are called to promote the common good. So when you vote, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Which candidates defend the right to life, right to life for all people? And which candidates deny the right to life and perpetuate the illusion that we can build a society without first, first securing that right? Like each of us, unborn children are sacred and precious to God, but they have no voice but ours. Now is not the time for us to be silent. And then hopping over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, the author says, If we sin deliberately, so we know it, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God, Jesus, and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? So here, this is so beautiful. It's incredible. The author is talking about our consciousness. We know that it's wrong. And when we turn away from the truth, when we know as Christian believers that we can fall away and it's actually going to be a worse judgment upon us because we knew, and John talks about this, James talks about this, St. Paul talks about this, that we knew the truth and then turned away, it's going to be even worse for us because we knew the truth and we still deliberately sinned after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And then he talks about how... Um, uh, when we're spurning the Son of God. Well, wh how do we spurn the Son of God? Well, and he goes on to say, when we profane the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant is the Eucharist. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, how we can eat and drink judgment upon ourselves in the Eucharist if we do not discern the body and blood of Christ. If we come to the Eucharist not disregarding that it's truly the body and blood of Christ, or if we come to the Eucharist without a clean, cl clear consciousness, consciousness, well, then we are actually drinking and drinking judgment upon ourselves. And it's the same thing here as the, uh, the, the author of the Hebrews is saying is that we actually profane the blood of the covenant, which is the Eucharist, uh, by which we were sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace because it is the spirit that is working in us. And we reject that we are 
both rejecting uh, the Holy Spirit and rejecting the the covenant of Jesus in the Eucharist that he established. And uh, if you back up, we know that uh, he's also talking about the Eucharist because in the few preceding verses verses in chapter 10, starting in verse 19 through 22, the author of Hebrews says that since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil consciousness and our bodies washed with pure water. So here again, he's talking about the the sanctifying grace that we receive in baptism, and he's talking about that the flesh of Jesus Christ is that that sanctuary that we enter into, that holy of holies that Jesus Christ, when he died, the, the temple was torn in two because his body is the temple. So we receive the new temple. We receive that new holy of holies in the Eucharist and the new covenant that Jesus Christ established. So here again, when we know these things and we turn away from it and decide not to do it. So if I knew that Jesus Christ was truly present in the body, blood, soul, and divinity in the new covenant that he established, um, and I didn't want to become Catholic or, uh, or I knew the truth of the Catholic faith in general, I did not want to become Catholic. I am going to be held liable to that because I'm rejecting the truth. So, um, and then when we talk about mercy and justice, justice oftentimes think we think of sometimes fair and unfair. Well, that's not fair or uh, that, you know, this person was born into this, this family or to this situation, that's not that might be fair and unfair but justice is is completely different god is perfectly just so even uh going to hell is just because it's an eternal sin that separates us from god and it's not that god sends us there we go there ourselves so god's god is perfect mercy and perfect justice and uh in jesus mercy and justice kiss just as the psalm says we see this beautiful illustration of mercy and justice based on consciousness in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. And there are so many incredible things to be discussed here, such as like Jesus' divinity that's brought out, his mercy, his goodness, his justice, and all those things. But I'm going to try to stick to mercy and justice in the form, uh, in the context of consciousness. So uh, chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery of John's gospel. And the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. Jesus bent down, and this is the word of mercy, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And a lot of times church fathers will say he was writing the sins of the sins of those who were there. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up, and this is justice, and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. So here we have this beautiful mercy and justice based on consciousness and the receiving or rejecting or of the grace of the Spirit. So here the woman is in sin. 
Jesus knows that she is in sin and he calls her to, and he snoops down to her level and says that he does not condemn her. And that love, that forgiveness transforms her into having love in her heart and to, to go and to not sin again as Jesus commands her to do. But the Pharisees who come and throw her out of this self-righteousness and does not have mercy on her, they have sin that they're guilty of, and yet Jesus speaks to them of their sin because he, he, he calls them out and says, if you don't have sin, go ahead and throw a stone. But they know. They're conscious that, oh, yeah, you're, Jesus knows that I'm a sinner. I actually fail. And what do they do? They just they walk away. They don't come to Jesus. So they are condemned. They receive justice right? In this moment, I pray that they came back and uh, repented. But in this moment, they're rejecting the grace of repentance of the Spirit, and they walk away out of pride. They they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit because they're not moved with mercy. They're, mo- they're not moved to repentance, that metanoia, to come to believe in Jesus and to realize where they stand as well. And, um, and then this woman, she receives mercy because she is at the feet of Jesus. And from what we can tell here, is repentant and wants to go and to not sin again. So it's a beautiful illustration of the Holy Spirit working repentance, mercy, and justice and uh, in the form of our consciousness, right? So there is no such thing as an accidental sin. If it's a sin, it's because we knew it was a sin and we chose to do it. But there is a difference between mortal and venial sin. Mortal sin is when we, that cuts us off from great grace. It is a deadly sin because of the gravity of it. We know it's wrong and we still did it. Venial sin, there's still no accidental venial sin. You still did it, but you may have done it out of some weakness, but it's not a uh, a big sin. Like it doesn't cut you off from grace, but it, but all sin is wrongdoing, right? So where do we get this from? First John 5 through 16, it says, if anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin, which is deadly. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So it's those, uh, he's saying that sin is not normal in the Christian life, but there is a difference between deadly sin, mortal sin that cuts you off from grace, and those who uh, is not deadly. So in this, to conclude um, all of this, this is why the sacrament of confession is such an incredible, incredible gift of Jesus Christ that he gave to his apostles, to his church, to in John chapter 20 and verse starting in verse 19, to forgive and to retain sins, to have the authority of Jesus Christ so that every single member of the body of Christ can hear the words of Jesus just as the those who encountered him in the first century in the scriptures who uh, that we have record of that he said your sins are forgiven go in peace 
That is, we hear the person of Jesus Christ in the sacrament sacrament of confession. So this is why confession is such a, a gift, because it forces us to examine our conscience and to name specifically our sins. And I do that with God directly. I try to do that on a daily basis. Every single night, I try to come to God with repentance. Every single Mass, before we even start the liturgy of the Word, at the very beginning of every Mass, we ask for pardon and forgiveness, and we come as repentant sinners to God. And and I love doing that, and I try to do that as often as we can, and we should be doing that, and we should be repenting and asking God uh, for forgiveness directly. But oftentimes I find myself, it's easier for me to just say sorry in general and not specifically call out what my sins are. But in sacramental confession, it forces me to be responsible for informing my own conscience and to acknowledge specifically my sins that I have committed so that I can say with St. Paul, I have nothing in my conscience that, that I know of that will accuse me at the day of judgment, but I therefore do not stand acquitted, but I stand with great confidence from the sacrament of confession because I named specifically those areas. And not only is the sacrament of confession an actual encounter with Jesus Christ every single time for the forgiveness of sins and the grace sanctifying grace to persevere but it forces us the very nature of a nature of it just forces us to form our conscience and to really do a self-examination of who we are in Jesus the closer and closer we get to Jesus I promise you the more and more spider webs that you're going to find in, the, in that little part of your house that you haven't cleaned up I'm using an analogy for our heart because when I first came to, to Jesus and I started going to confession, it was like, I did this, I did that, and these were like bad things. <laughs> but now as I'm growing and just as the as the bridegroom of, of Adam to Eve, he knew himself when he saw Eve, it's the same thing with the true bridegroom, Jesus. When we encounter him, we truly see our, our true selves. And uh, he reveals more and more of the of the dirty parts of our heart that he wants to clean up. And so now it's more of, I thought this way. My heart moved this way. I felt pride. I felt uh, jealous. I felt envy. I felt anger. I felt impatient. Um, I thought this way about somebody else. I started judging other people. I was all these things, right? I started, my heart in my mind started being the primary focus and that is what Jesus came to do is to heal the innermost parts of our hearts to be pure to be holy to be meek and humble to be like Jesus to be like God and so it's such a beautiful gift to have the sacrament of confession and I just want to end off with um, this last verse that's going to transition us nicely into the next episode where we talk about heaven, hell, and purgatory. And this is in Luke 12. And this is, uh, I want to end with this because it is a great transition because we're talking about our consciousness, consciousness now. And here we have specifically those who sinned, who knew it, who knew that they were sinning and they still did it, or the people who didn't know through no fault of their own, right? Um, and then the next episode is heaven, hell, and purgatory. And we see here clearly heaven, hell, and purgatory. And this is in Luke 12, and this the faithful and unfaithful servant, starting in verse 42. So let's just read it through. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward, whom his master will set over his household 
to give them their portion of the of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing so. Truly, I tell you, he will set him over all his possessions. So he's talking about judgment, and the first one is the one who is doing what the um, what the master of this uh, household has told the steward to do, and that he is in heaven. He will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will punish him and put him with the unfaithful. And that is hell. (laughs) He's going to put him with the unfaithful. That is hell. And then in verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating. This is in purgatory. The person knows his master's will and still didn't do it. He's going to receive a severe beating. But he who did not know and did what deserved the beating shall receive a light beating. This is a person who had did not know through no, no, through no faults of their own, but died in God's uh, grace and friendship will receive a light beating in purgatory. And then he concludes this with, Everyone to whom much is given, of him will much be required. And of him to whom men commit, much they will demand the more.